0: Welcome to TechNado. This week we've got updates coming out of the reInvent Amazon Web Services Conference, and we've got an interview with Tamika Reid, founder of Women in Linux. That's all coming up on TechNado, starting now. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome back to another riveting, action-packed, adventure-filled episode of NATO. I'm your host, Don Pezzette. In studio with me this week is Mr. Justin Dennison, one of the hosts over here at ITProTV. And uh, the reason I've got him roped in instead of good old trusty Peter Van Rysdam is that there have been a ton of announcements rolling out of the AWS reInvent conference this week, and I thought it'd be fun to sit down with Justin, our, our resident developer expert, and talk about some of those announcements, what they mean, what Uh, You know, what actually matters to us, there's a ton of announcements. I'll tell you, like, maybe a tenth of them are really cool and awesome, and the other 90% are uh, whoop-de-doo type things. (laughs) So, uh, Justin, thanks for joining us in studio. It is great to be back, Don. And uh, I don't know, after that intro,
1: I felt like I needed to have, like, maybe my tie around my head. You said we were going to have a riveting good time. I don't know. Like, should I have a battle axe or something? I don't know. Are we getting getting crazy here?
0: If one of us is not bleeding by the end of this episode, then we have failed to maintain our journalistic... uh, uh, values <laughs> <laughs> i think that's how journalism works. i'm pretty sure yeah, we'll see but yeah there's been
1: a, gr- a great number of things come out of aws this week um, during the reinvent conference some of them like you said i was like "Ooh, i'm giddy about it and then i was like it's kind of cool i guess but they can have a kind of widespread impact for other types of customers so those things do happen but there has been some very interesting things come
0: about indeed Yep, and I'll tell you, I, I knew I was in trouble because there were some that you were really excited about <laughs> that I couldn't care about in the slightest. I'm like, wait a minute, there might be something I don't know here. So let's <laughs> let's rope you in. So Justin and I, we picked out uh, probably six different announcements. If you've been following the reInvent blog, which I've got pulled up right here, uh, they've just been pumping them out. Uh, we actually do have an TV team that's out there on the ground, but... Uh, not us. We, we we got neglected. So we have to follow the blog. So uh, so anyhow, the first one I want to talk about is AWS Lambda. If you've watched any of the AWS training that uh, Justin and I have made, we mentioned Lambda as like this Swiss Army knife, be-all, end-all, it-can-do-anything tool inside of AWS. Uh, apparently, it couldn't do everything, and now it can. So Justin, you want to summarize that one for me?
1: <laughs> this is one of those things I've, I've actually spent a fair amount of time on. Um, very specific example. I wanted some scientific computing libraries from Python in Lambda functions, but they have C extensions. And it was very, very difficult to kind of package those up. Also, I, I like programming in Rust, and I was like, ah, how can you put Rust here? Well, these recent announcements actually allow a shared runtime, and there's a set of APIs that allow people to kind of add to the language support. Ruby's supported, Rust is now supported. Python and scientific computing libraries for Python kind of just work out of the box. An additional pain point was every time I wrote a new lambda function I had to bundle up all the dependencies for every one of them. But what if I had a sharing between those? Well this now has uh, lambda layers where I can share repetitive code or libraries that maybe I've written or dependencies between respective lambda functions. Uh, It was it was incredibly exciting for me, uh, if nothing else than the Rust one, because I've read some recent articles where people have written and kind of forced it into Lambda using um, like Node.js to, to do a child process or something and getting crazy performance using Rust. And so I was like, all right, it's official now. We, we have it here. So I was pretty excited about that.
0: And, uh, you know, Lambda, it can do a lot. It's very powerful. But if you're not familiar with Lambda, you guys know I make fun of industry buzzwords a lot. And serverless is the huge buzzword these days. Well, Lambda epitomizes serverless. And I think this improvement right here really shows that Amazon is doubling down and committing on that. But a lot of people need applications that run sometimes, not all the times. And Lambda is a great way to do that. So definitely check it out. Lots of advancements going on there. Cool things to see. So let's move on to our next one, um, which... This one was one that I found pretty interesting. I don't know if you did or not, but uh, uh, they have rolled out the ability to hibernate your EC2 instances. And when they say hibernate, they're really talking about like your laptop, when you hibernate your laptop, right? You can shut an instance down whenever you want. If you terminate it, it gets deleted, right? But if you shut it down, it powers down. Now you just pay for the storage of maintaining that disk. With hibernate... It'll actually take what's in RAM and write that to disk as well. So you don't have to shut the instance down. You can take it and capture it right at that moment. And the best part about that is when you spin it back up, it's ready to rock that moment. You're not, you are not—you don't have to go through a boot process. So they're trying to shrink the amount of time it takes to get an instance up and doing its job. And hibernating does that. Now, it increases your storage cost a little bit because now it has to write what's in RAM to disk. Depending on how much RAM you're using, that could be could be a lot, could be a little. Doesn't doesn't necessarily set at a fixed value, uh, but you'll just pay storage on that while it's hibernated, and then you can spin it up really quick. All of this is SSD backed these days, so reading from SSD back into RAM happens pretty pretty fast. Uh, have you had any workloads that would benefit from this? I don't know about workloads. When I read this, I've had some trouble with my laptop from time
1: to time, where <laughs> I, I go to hibernate and then I can't wake up at all, so I have to do like a, a weird reboot process. Um, so. I'm hoping that's not the case, and I'm pretty sure they, they've started working out the bugs, but you never know. But really, storage is cheap comparatively, yeah. and if you if you shorten the boot time, I would probably just pay for the storage.
0: You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it now, now that you've mentioned it, right? Like, what what if I sleep an instance, and there's an AZ failure or something like that, and so when I fire it back up, it's in a different AZ? Like, I mean, they have to plan for this stuff, but, I mean, that could be a, a drastically different world for that instance when it powers back up, Um if it's registered to a load balancer, well, I guess you'd still have a health check, right? Yeah, so you should have a he- Even yeah. after it wakes up, it's got to pass a health check. Uh, but, I mean, hopefully that would at least
1: shorten those times. Um, but, I don't know. I've, I've had some trouble with Hibernate from time to time, but that's just on my personal machine. I'm sure Amazon has, has poked and prodded and, and tried to figure out how to eliminate those if anything has occurred.
0: And uh, all the documentation I've seen so far has indicated the Amazon Linux AMIs. I haven't seen if they've rolled out support for non-Amazon Linux or like Microsoft Windows. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised for non-Amazon Linux, but on the Windows side, it's a whole different Hibernate mechanism. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, This is a little bit more of a niche kind of feature. Uh, You know, speaking of speeding up the time to get a instance fired up, uh, another little bit of news that came out was they've, they've launched the Firecracker VM, a uh, lightweight virtualization virtual machine, or what do we call it a virtual machine? It's like an AMI, right? It's, it... I, so what I read, it's like this
1: tiny little, they're calling it a micro VM. And they're like, oh, it's just tiny, tiny. And the the example actually in this article shows being on an Amazon Linux EC2 and then kind of just spinning up a VM inside of that using the Firecracker, I think it's like an API. It's like a utility that calls an API. Um, I haven't had a chance to play with it. It's only been out a few times. But some of the the statistics, the metrics that they're giving, it's like a VM spin up in 150 milliseconds. Uh, so yeah. ridiculous performance.
0: And and that's a big deal because it, it kind of, at first glance, it looks like nested virtualization, which I, I don't know if you've ever done nested virtualization, but it's a, it's a nightmare, and your performance is always in the gutter when you do it, no matter... No matter what bells and whistles they create. Yeah, I, my hands are getting sweaty just talking.
1: But you, you said it, and I was like, ah, oh, no, 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 no. I've i tried it a few times. It has not
0: worked out real well for me. Um, but I, I don't
1: know if that's quite how this all
0: works. I haven't been able to do it again. So what I've seen, it looks a lot more like LXC containers. Uh, well, that might be redundant. But anyhow, uh, you know, that you can basically spin up a containerized virtual machine or operating system and do it in... Milliseconds. I mean, just really fast to get those up and operational. Uh, if you're doing scaling events and so on, that can be really handy. Although I don't, I don't see on scaling events where it would be that great because they're running inside of an instance that you've already launched. So you've kind of already reserved the resources. You might as well use them at that point versus scaling. So it would be more like um, just quickly deploying services. Um, there have been, I, there was one application I'm trying to remember the name of it where uh, it provided secure email. And it did it in a way where each customer who was connecting was basically connecting to their own instance of a front-end server. And a micro VM solution like this would be really handy for that because you just constantly launch these different sessions, completely compartmentalizing all of your customers. So you get a lot of power with that. Uh, It is a special Amazon feature, so definitely look into it, called Firecracker VM. All right. Uh, next one here in my list, DynamoDB. And and you brought this one up to me, Justin, because I, I had totally missed this announcement that DynamoDB now supports transactions. So why do we care about that? Uh, the, well, actually, it was funny.
1: <laughs> I, I asked you, I was like,
0: well, if I
1: needed transactions, I would probably just pick a relational database. Um, but I think part of this is the the scalability and kind of the response time that you can get from DynamoDB while also having transactional support. Um, There's... So DynamoDB, this is one of them. It had a couple of other announcements like on demand essentially auto-scales now. You don't have to provision read and write um, capacity units and it can scale fairly well. So I'm thinking what's happened is they've had customers, I'm just I'm totally guessing here, that had Dynamo had been utilizing it but then needed the needed transactions but it would have been really painful To migrate away from it uh, because it does have great performance. Um, But, you know, I don't know your thoughts on it. Like, yeah. what would you do in this case?
0: Well, so so the deal here is that DynamoDB is great if you have a massive data set and you want to provide rapid read access to it. So websites like Craigslist, or, I mean, they, they mentioned their customers here. Uh, Tinder is <laughs> it's, it's actually in the article. So uh, it's good enough for Tinder, where most people are you know just looking, consuming data, right? But in the example of Tinder, they're going a step further. There's a whole swipe left, swipe right. So they're, they're having to kind of record that activity. So there's write operations. And anytime you have write operations, there's a chance that you could have a partial write and end up with corrupt data. Transactions prevent that, right? Now, the way DynamoDB handled it in the past was just if it didn't go through, it got discarded, and that was that. It didn't like do a, uh, a true commit like a transaction would do. So now they've rolled out support for that. I still say you're going to get all the benefits of rapid reads that you wouldn't get with a relational database so you, you know, or a traditional relational database. So you get the improvements there, but now you have transaction support too. I know others where they've relied on things like uh, SQS to take care of this, where you didn't need a transaction. If you just sent any write operation through an SQS queue, and then if it failed, well, the ticket was still there in the queue, you would just pick it up again and reapply it. In that scenario, you could potentially end up with duplicates, Right. This solution eliminates the need for that queue and eliminates the possibility of duplicates. So there's some benefits there if you take advantage of it. I it, This is brand new, hot off the presses, so I haven't had a chance to see how that impacts performance. But honestly, if you're knocking SQS out of the way, it probably improves performance. I would think
1: so as well. I mean, I guess you could use a FIFO queue and SQS, but then you actually have throughput reduction, if I'm not mistaken. So removing that complexity and just having Dynamo just being able to do that, I can see from a pr- developer productivity as well as a, a maintenance issue that would make things substantially easier. Um, I'm like I said, Dynamo had a few other announcements associated with it, uh, like auto scaling and on demand. That I'm interested to see how does all of this does it affect performance at all? Is there's not really any difference? How does it affect cost? Uh, but you know, brand new thing, so who knows what the long term impact or adoption
0: will be. Yep, and you know, if you don't use DynamoDB, then you don't really care, right? So <laughs> it's not the most popular of services, although it's used by some really really big organizations. Let's jump over to a service that everybody uses, S3, right? Uh big announcement 2 days ago on or uh, as of this very second, I guess. Uh but anyhow, uh, on S3, they have announced fully managed SFTP access to your S3 buckets. That's a pretty big deal. Well, you know, I say it's a pretty big deal because I know a ton of people have asked for it. But and, and let me get your opinion on this. Justin, I, I've interacted with S3 buckets for so long now that I've just gotten used to using the AWS CLI and other resources to access it. So, uh, what do you think? In your world, is that a big deal? Uh, you, you know, it's it's odd. I,
1: I've used the AWS CLI. I've used some SDKs. I've used the the console. And then there's a few like you know GUI clients that you can just say this is an S3 bucket and put it in there. Um, I haven't seen where I've needed it, however, I also have never had, you know, reservations about whether it's a secure, like, upload procedure or whatever it may be. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily use this, but I can see if, you know, FTP is part of your workload, right? You have a lot of static sites or a lot of static assets, you need to put them there. This may just, this will make things easier. You don't have to maintain uh, the server or whatnot.
0: Now, I do want to highlight that this is not a free feature, right? Uh, The way it works, and I I brought the little diagram they posted up here, uh, you're actually creating an an EC2 instance that's running, and you're SFTPing into that instance, and it's acting as a translator or a proxy. So it's really just taking your SFTP commands, and then it's turning them into more than likely just standard API calls to to manage the bucket on the back end. So it's really, you end up going through that API one way or another, so you could cut out the middleman and just do it directly like we've been doing all these years, but if you absolutely have a workflow that requires SFTP, there's plenty of examples that are out there like that. Like, um, I've seen secure, secure email appliances where they want to maintain an a, a archive of their data, and they just support SFTP for offloading it and not like S3 APIs. Well... Now we could leverage that, but you are going to have to pay for that instance. So if you want to enable it, you'll go in there, and, and you actually – there's a little button that says Create Server. I so kind of show that. Um, create Server, and it's going to spin up that instance, and you can load your own keys on there to ensure the highest degree of privacy, or you can use the, the built-in keys. Uh, but at that point, you define user accounts, people SFTP into it just like any other SFTP server – and on the back end, it's all being put into S3. So pretty neat, uh, you know, alternative method for accessing that resource.
1: Now, now Don, for some reason, this made me think. Uh, when we use the CLI, is is that established through HTTPS? Is that a secure connection in transit? Uh, I, I don't rightly know right offhand.
0: So it is, uh, and it uses TLS. So the AWS CLI, they updated it oh, a while ago now, probably, I want to say like five years ago now where they set it where everything done through the CLI is done securely. So it uses transport layer security. TLS um, establishes that connection up and sends it that way. So, you know, you're, in my opinion, on a lot of this stuff, you're better off using the CLI. But that means you've got to install the CLI and you've got to store your credentials, uh, you know, at least your access key and your, your secret to be able to run things. With SFTP, well, I guess you still have credentials, right? Yeah. But I mean, it would be a different set of credentials, just credentials for SFTP, not necessarily your account credentials so uh. I, I guess where i can
1: see it is if your sftp credentials get compromised the i guess the worst they can do is interact with that but if your cli credentials get compromised then you may have a whole other set of permissions attached to that the That's cli true. user that oh look i have 300 bitcoin mining machines now where'd those come from um so i, I can see like the division of that being helpful in some capacity
0: Yeah, on my side, I I just see that main uh, workflow or or, uh, use case scenario are, there's a lot of appliances out there like Cisco routers, where if I want to back up my config in a Cisco router, I can use the archive command. And the archive command can point to an SFTP server. It can't point to an S3 bucket. So now I can configure that router, that Cisco ASA firewall or whatever to back up its config once a day and point it to this SFTP server. I know it'll be an encrypted connection, and then it'll drop that config file off right in that S3 bucket. If I have versioning turned on, I can keep track of, of that config over time. And if we're doing an encrypted S3 bucket, it's encrypted at rest. It's encrypted in transit. That's a good secure backup solution right there. And I never actually had to mess directly with the S3 API. So that's kind of a cool thing. But you'll, you'll pay a little bit for it. And, and speaking of, of paying for it, I, I, you know, I haven't actually played
1: around with this a, a great deal. I saw the announcement the other day. Uh, I haven't had a chance to, to mess with it. I'm wondering if you can, let's say you have, like, batch processes. If this only happens once a day, do you have to keep this server running all the time? Or can you hibernate it like a regular EC2, or, you know, like, uh, stop it like a regular EC2 instance and only spin it up when need be?
0: I imagine you could, but think of the use case scenario there. Like, um, all right, I want this router to back up. I'd have to go and and fire up this. This is true. This is true. Or, not, or we could call it from the command line, but then we're... Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, maybe you set up a CloudWatch
1: event that, that turns it on from 12 to 4 and kicks yeah. a lambda. I don't know. You could do that. I'm trying to put
0: lambdas back in here. I don't know. And, you know, I, I haven't actually looked at the pricing, uh, just full disclosure here, so we could be talking about cents a month. Yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're overthinking it. But, yeah, so anyhow, they rolled out. It's a brand new cutting edge feature. Definitely a cool thing. Um, I, I see this fitting a few different use case scenarios out there, uh, but... If you don't use it, you're not losing anything. You can still use the AWS CLI like you've been doing or the SDKs you can reach in however you want. All right, now, of all of the news to come out of reInvent, probably the biggest one, the one that most of the news agencies were hitting on, was the fact that they're rolling out EC2 instances powered by Amazon's own Graviton processors, which are ARM-based CPUs. Uh, Really neat feature here. Up until now, every EC2 instance has been based on Intel CPUs, right, or VCPUs. But it's always been an Intel processor on the background, uh, not even AMD, right? It's always been Intel. Now we have some ARM processors. This is the result of um, Amazon's acquisition of a company whose name has totally eluded me. It's, Do you remember? It's uh, Anna Roop or something like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were talking article. about this the other day. Oh, oh here it is. And, hey, Annapurna. There ah, we there, go. Yeah. So, uh, or... I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but anyhow, we're very sorry for that. (laughs) So, they acquired this company that made or or was trying to push ARM processors in the data center. Well, now it's finally made it to the public and they're rolling this out. So, Justin, what are your thoughts on ARM processors in the data center? This is, uh, you know, this actually comes along with, uh, I
1: think, uh, it's been Intel for a long time. I think recently there are a few instances now that are AMD powered, and then now we have ARM processors. I actually asked, Don and I were talking the other day when this came out, I was like, I don't really know what I would utilize that for. Like, to me, why wouldn't I just have, like, a T3 micro if I have something that's a really small workload? Um, to that extent, if I have something batch, go to a spot instance and even get a bigger one. for. So it didn't strike me as why I would use it. Um, but, you know, Don, you brought up a really good point. You were like, well, maybe I need something really low power. I can bring down the cost. I can have more kind of, uh, you know, in the long term, if we get that economy of scale, if people start utilizing these, that cost is going to drive down even further. If you have a web server serving static pages and you don't have a high hit count, or if you have a caching service, you use CloudFront with it or something, Mm -hmm. then you could have a lot of web pages hosted on this tiny, tiny ARM-based server. Not a lot of resources, very low cost. So I can see that as being uh, a pretty good use case. And you get a pretty, I think the the minimum was $0.02 a month or two cents an hour, excuse me, not a month, not a month, <laughs> just so we're clear, time scales off. But you do get one vCPU and, and two gigabytes of RAM. Um, and then the network actually has some, some decent uh, interest here, right, the network bandwidth up to 10 gigabits. So I can see that, but again, I don't know of any other, th- I haven't been able to think sure. of any other thing.
0: So the, the big deal with these ARM processors is they, they consume a lot less electricity, right? So on the back end for Amazon, that means they can support more of them. That's good for Amazon, right? It brings their price down and Amazon passes that on to us. So these prices are lower. And in fact, if you compare these these instances, they're they're A1 instances. So if you compare like an A one large to a uh, M5 large, right, which would be your your standard instance, it's significantly less expensive. It's less than 50% of the cost of doing an M class uh, instance. Uh, If you compare it even to the the T series, right, the the test series, it's lower cost than them. So you can save money by using them. Now, there is this conception out there that these are lower performance. And so that was the first thing. When they launched this live, I I went and spun up some instances because I wanted to see what the performance was like. And I even even through caution of the wind, and just used them in our show the other day, uh, Justin and I were filming, I don't know, some kind of AWS content. And, uh, and so I spun it up, and I was trying to trip a CloudWatch alarm uh, where I wanted to, to trigger if the CPU utilization was over 40% for a period of five minutes, right? So I did my normal thing when I want to spike CPU, which is I generate an MD5 sum of the entire hard drive. That usually takes a while. It takes 10, 15 minutes. I fired it up on my, I had an A1 medium that I was using, uh, and the disk IO is so high, and the CPU is, is great, uh, it actually ran faster than I expected. It didn't trip my five-minute alarm because it got done too quick. So from a performance standpoint, they work really well. I launched it with uh, Amazon Linux 2 on it, and I was able to spin up Apache, PHP, throw stuff on there. All my normal workflow, uh, none of that really changed. Every, everything that I was, I was used to doing, I even goofed around with throwing some chef uh, cookbooks at it to do some configuration all of that worked fine. Like, in, in my opinion, these things are ready for prime time as long as they meet your performance needs.
1: As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure I didn't know they were uh, the ARM-based processors until after the show. <laughs> I, it, it, it legitimately looked like just a regular EC2. We usually use yeah. T-series during the shows. It There was not the—obviously, you don't have a GUI or anything. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't see any performance lag. Uh, actually, the MD5-Sum of the hard drive, I was like, oh, yeah, be, hey, it's done. Look at that. We mm-hmm. had to run it twice. Had to reduce the, the CPU threshold. So I didn't see any hiccups. And I, I would agree with you. If you have something like that, you know, we'll yeah. let them
0: rip. It'll save you money, if nothing else. Uh, but I'll tell you if you're using standard packages, if you're using Apache, Nginx, if you're using Amazon Linux, it's a no brainer. If you're using Red Hat, well, I don't believe they have Red Hat available as an option yet on this instance. They're working on it. Uh, but uh, Ubuntu, I believe they did have. Debian, I think they did have. So you, know, you have slightly more limited operating systems. They're not doing Windows on ARM yet, so that, uh, that option goes away. You would have that if you did an M4 or M5. I could do an M5 large with Windows. I can't do an A1 large with Windows. So there, there's some things you give up. But as long as it's standard packages, you're in business. And, and with Amazon Linux, they've already ported all that stuff over to the ARM architecture. Uh, In the scenario of custom software, though, if you've written custom applications, you'll need to recompile those for ARM support. Uh, That may not be worth it to you. It might be worth it to pay the extra money to stay on an Intel architecture so you don't have to recompile your applications. Uh, Justin, do you ever deal with that, compiling Uh, for different architectures? So
1: the the compiler for Go has a pretty good story for that. Uh, If you actually run a scripting language, let's say you have a Django backend or something that's running on those, uh, you wouldn't have to recompile as long as the runtimes already exist. So if it's a scripting language and you can yum install through Amazon Linux 2, then your application should just run because it's going to be inter- interpreted at runtime. So scripting languages are probably going to be a little easier, but if you have like a C library, C++, something like that, you're probably going to have to recompile. Docker has made this a little bit easier that's true, that's true. Uh, in that capacity. Spin up a Docker container that simulates that. and uh, Every once in a while you get hiccups there, but it's not too bad. I mean, But as low cost and, and as decent performance, then just spin one up put your source code there, recompile on that, keep the binary, and everything's good to go.
0: All right. Well, Justin, I think that wraps up the primary announcements that we snagged from the reInvent conference. It is still, I think it's wrapping up today, right? I think there's a
1: few sessions today.
0: The bulk of it was over yesterday. So we'll probably still see a few little announcements trickle out over the next couple of days, but the ones we covered were the ones that we kind of felt were the most significant things to come out of it. A lot of really cool stuff in the AWS world. I'm sure we'll start seeing more stuff out of the other vendors as uh, the months go on, because the competition is neck and neck out there. Uh, it's kind of fun to watch. But, uh, Justin, thanks for joining us and spending time in the studio. It's It's been a blast. Don't you know, I
1: always like having... Uh... I would like to consider them intellectual discussions about uh, uh, varying viewpoints on things like this, right? Different worlds. So it's been fun. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, don't go anywhere because after the break, we've got an interview with Tamika Reed, founder of Women in Linux. Uh, We're going to talk about some really interesting things there. You'll get a chance to learn about a whole whole, uh, movement she's got going on, helping women get more involved in Linux operating uh, system-related jobs and careers. So definitely stay tuned for that. But for now, we're going to take a break. We'll see you back in a few. I'm James Packer. I'm the general manager of Kirk ISS based in the Cayman Islands. I used IT Pro TV extensively in my last place. It grew very well, helped upskill the team. I had 110 engineers in the field and we had dozens of IT Pro accounts with the guys training and last year alone they passed over 40 certs by using the online training. I think I can safely say um, without IT Pro TV I wouldn't be where I was today because I only got this job on the back of the qualifications I have. Welcome back to TechNATO everybody. I am excited to dive into our interview for today. We have Miss Tamika Reed from women in Linux and she's going to be telling us a little bit about her organization and some of the things that are going on in the Linux world. I'm really excited to hear uh, you know it's always nice to see a different perspective on topics and she can definitely give us that. So uh, before I, I ramble on too much here, let's reach over here across the internet to miss Tamika and uh, Tamika, would you mind spending a, just a moment to kind of introduce yourself to our viewers?
2: Uh, Yes, I'm Tamika Reed, founder of Women in Linux. Uh, I've been doing Linux administration now going on for 19 years. Um, I actually got started with doing uh, Linux doing high-performance computing uh, at the University of Washington. Um, And I now develop a nonprofit to get more women into tech uh, from an infrastructure perspective oftentimes you'll hear here like hey we need to code we need to code so everyone goes to a boot camp and they go to a coding boot camp and they spend 14 to eighty thousand dollars, depending on the boot camp and then they get out and then they're looking for a job in web development and then they've never ever heard of vmware they've never ever heard of being a storage admin or being a firewall admin or anything of that nature because it's just not something that's promoted. You can't go to college for it. You can go to a community college for it, or you can go to a two-year college for it, or, or you know, some kind of technical college, but not a full-ride full, full ride college. And so I try to show you how to get into tech from those perspectives.
0: You know, it's interesting because we we hear a lot about the inequality that's going on right now, you know, the lack of diversity in a lot of organizations. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we, usually hear that in describing the entire company. So Facebook as a whole or Apple as a whole, mm-hmm. I never really thought about it from the perspective of like just a Linux administrator. So is right. it, is it worse in that area or better? Like what, what, uh, what would you say it's like, how, I, how often do you encounter women in that space?
2: Uh, so I, that's why I started it. Um, I, as I've been doing it 19 years and I probably worked with Maybe three women. Wow. In nineteen years. Um, I've never worked with any women of color in those years. I had my first interview by a woman of color earlier this year. I had my first interview by a man of color uh last year, December. Uh so the the I we're I think we're out there we're just I mean, just by pure population and numbers, it's just not a vast majority. And then again, like I said before, most people have never, ever heard of Linux until probably in the last four or five years, maybe. Um, You've heard a big push about Linux, but if you're talking about Red Hat or Ubuntu or Arch Linux or Scientific Linux, no one's never really heard of those things. They just... They've just used them in a, in a sense to push their code to it, but they didn't know they were actually using Linux. They got some commands, and they say, oh, that made it work, and then that was it.
0: And what do, you, what do you think is driving that? Is it that people are doing web applications in the cloud and Linux has kind of become the de facto operating system, or is there something else pushing that?
2: Uh, I So if we step back, I think what's really pushing the lack of is just the lack of how schools are set up. I mean, if you look at your your four-year degree, I got my degree in computer engineering. Uh, I didn't get to play with Linux, even though I was working in Linux and had a full-time job before I graduated. I didn't play with Linux until my junior, senior year in college, and we made a driver. And I helped my teacher how to set up the environment in order for us to make a driver and that was it it was like a blip on the map and so we we as a community when we're talking about education and when i say we from college on down we do a horrible job of getting students prepared for jobs they they can get uh with the right type of training immediately after high school and with a two-year degree, if you look at it. So one of the things that I I like is out of Georgia, out of Georgia at in at Georgia State, um, I think State Farm is running this. They have a two-year program set up with all the community colleges, where the community colleges are treated as uh, big data schools. So you can go to the community college, get your get your uh, a two-year degree, and get a job. And then roll into a four-year college to get uh, your PhD, not your PhD, but your bachelor's degree inside of uh, doing data science. If we could have more structure like that, that'd be great. You know, like I'm not saying that you don't need a college degree, but I'm saying it'd be nice for someone who's who decided that they didn't want to go to college to know that they have options. And I don't think we do a good job of showing options. So therefore, as you continue on, it becomes a lack of training and a lack of knowledge.
0: You know, we, we've been hearing from a, a number of tech leaders recently that a, a college degree is not as important as it used to be, at least not in, in the technology space. But you mentioned how you know, you're helping people find training and, and there's community college and other types of programs. What, what types of programs are there out there? So big data, obviously, that's a huge buzzword right now. There's a lot of opportunity there. Are there, are there other areas of administration that you're finding upticks in?
2: I mean, yeah, so uh big data, even autonomous vehicle, um, there's a big one, there's a big push. I think autonomous comes out of Udacity. There's been a big push for SRE. Uh in fact a lot of the SRE site reliability engineers are they're looking for people just to have the basics of understanding Python or some type of programming language and then roll them over into being site reliability engineers at at a base level. All right. Um there's um there's a program, I believe they're still doing it. It was through Drop Dropbox is an apprentice program where they hire you. And from from in that apprentice program, they get you trained up on on the things that they're doing and how to how how to get your skill sets up and what they need from you. And then they roll you over into a full time position. So, you know, not only are the are there are the internships out there, there's apprenticeship programs out there that are that are being hosted by a lot of major companies. Um, uh, AWS has a huge uh, push on internships, and out of those internships, you're getting actual. Um, you're getting actual. Um, depending on where you're working at, to are giving out clearances in those internships as well, too. So you know, there's a there's a big push by a lot of major companies to get those kids who who don't want to go to college or who wants to who want to get just their skills up in order to get that. And then. I do training as well. We do meetups every week, every Wednesday, uh, just to talk about, you know, the I try to do the fundamentals all the way up to the advanced stuff. Fundamentals to me are how do you read a job description? Like if you sat down and looked at what a job what a Linux administrator does from uh from two years to 10 years and understand how that works and understand well how how you can negotiate i try to do all that with with everyone in my group cuz that's important as well too
0: are, are there any like certifications that you guys focus on or is it more focused on getting that 2 year degree what what do you find's the, the more effective
2: uh, we focus on a lot uh, i talk about everything from puppet ansible chef to big data to immutable infrastructure cloud native infrastructure to site reliability engineer, to security, to uh, how to do security scans, um, getting your CISSP, Docker containers. We cover the entire gamut of what you think would be sitting in a data center. And even when we first started, I went to the, back to the basics and that's actually coming back around. Um, how to build out a data center. If you had a customer and a customer walked up to you and said, I want to build out my data center, what does that look like? What do you need in that data center? How do you get quotes? And even now, with the as we continue to grow, don't think that Amazon doesn't need a data center. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, everyone needs a data center, right? Um and even in Amazon, looking at your VPCs, they're treated as a data center. So what do you need in your VPC as a data center? And how do you build that out? What's, what, what does that look like? And so uh, there's a big push now for people to understand not just, hey, I deployed my app in AWS. It's a, it's a need to understand performance and tuning and uh, how to automate that, how to scale it. Security is huge. We just saw Elasticsearch uh, leak their data, that their data got leaked. So how do you stop that? You know How, how do you prevent that? And what are you looking for uh, in people to help you prevent those things? And, and
0: a lot of the, the talks you're speaking about, I know on your website, womeninlinux.com, uh, you have a ton of videos that are posted on the blog there. Are, are those the talks from your meetups or are those different talks?
2: So some of the talks from from Meetup, Some of them are keynotes. Some of them are things that I've just found over the internet that I think are super super great, super dope. Uh, people I've run into articles that I, I I think people could use. Uh, I try to in my Slack group. Everyone thinks I'm a robot because I'm posting stuff from <laughs> TechCrunch. Who's IPO? Who IPO? Why? Well what what do you need to look out for for that? Who's what's coming up? Like, you know, this whole Jedi product uh project that's coming up for with Amazon and Oracle and AWS well not AWS but Amazon, uh Azure, uh Google what's on it, Oracle, it's ten billion dollars. Wow. It's ten billion dollars with the government. And AWS is moving into New York and and, and moving into uh, clearance city, as I call it, yeah. but but uh, the question becomes: Is what skill sets do those people need to get those jobs? And how do you and how do you get those skill sets? And how do you stay in tech and stay uh, abreast with what's going on and not get pigeonholed into one thing?
0: Well, if you're just tuning in, we are interviewing Tamika Reed, founder of Women in Linux, and we've been talking about some of the. Some of the areas where there's a, a lack of people with a certain skill set, where it's a great opportunity for women to get involved, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the other side of things. That how how are you finding how are you finding women to get engaged in these programs? Uh, are you uh, engaging with schools or the community? How, how does that work?
2: So how we find people, uh, in it, really, to join our group or to be a part of the group is uh, through word of mouth, uh, pretty organic, growing. Um, our YouTubes, uh, I've really gotten a lot of looks on YouTube from CEOs, uh, going to meetups, other meetups, um, actually, uh, even just talking at conferences and doing keynotes. We get a lot of people that want to come in and help out and join. So it's been pretty organic, um, for, for us. And we have men in our group too. So we look at men as allies. So, um, we have men that speak at our conferences. Uh, we do online conferences. We have men that, that are in our Slack group. Um, I don't think you can go throughout tech without having one or the other. So, you might as well get used to each other now. So, that way, when you go to work, you at least know how to work with somebody. You know, you have some type of sensitive training with each other.
0: Now, I know you're you're right here in Florida, not too terribly far from us. Even uh, are you working just kind of in the local area, or are you across the nation, uh, across the globe? Are there are there other organizations spread out that you're working alongside?
2: So that's what's so cool about us. We do everything virtually. Uh, every meetup is virtual. Uh, every our Slack, everything we're virtual. So we can be in New York and put on our meetup group that hey, we're meeting in New York. Who's all in New York? Let's meet up. Like. I am not the one to be tied to just one place. I learned my lesson after the first two meetups by having a location and no one showed up. And so we grew organically online. Uh, so we do everything online, which is easy for me, because if I go to a conference, I don't have to worry about, oh, I can't do my meetup. I can do my meetup anywhere.
0: Excellent. And uh, and how's the response been? Uh, you've been growing. Uh, well. I I don't think I ever asked. Like, how long has the organization been together?
2: Uh, we've been um, together since end of 2014, beginning of okay. 2015. So we've grown from no members to I think we hit 400. Oh, congratulations! Uh, have, thank you. We hit 400 members. Uh, we're growing. We're trying to grow our YouTube. Trying to get more content out there. We don't have a IT pro t- uh, TV studios, uh, so uh, you know we do what we can, um, and try to get the best content and the best the best the best path out to people as as best as we can. So what what advice
0: would you give to somebody like if one of our viewers is listening right now and and they maybe they've never even thought of Linux before as a career path mm-hmm. and they think they they want to get involved and engaged like what mm-hmm. are the first steps they should take?
2: Um i give a couple of steps. The first step is never look at tech from in the weeds. Always look at tech from a 30,000 foot view. So the next time you decide that you want to order a pizza from Domino's, remember there's some tech behind it. There is some security behind it. There is some type of server that sits behind there that's taking your order. There is some network traffic behind it always look at things from a 30,000 foot view and then drill in and just have the ability to understand that you don't have to start out in the weeds. You can start out at the top and then try to decipher where you want to go. And I think that's the my best advice for people because I know a lot of people start out in the weeds and they never think about how to start out from the top. Even if you look at a Fitbit, the data that's transmitted from a Fitbit and where to and what they're doing with that data and how is it getting transmitted? Just those things, you know, always try to think about.
0: All right. Now I know one question that I, I usually get asked by people who, who are interested in Linux. They usually ask me like, what is my favorite distro? So what, what is your favorite distro?
2: Um, I tell you what gets me paid. <laughs> 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 Working with red hat gets me paid. Uh, if you're going cloud architecture, no doubt uh, Debian or uh, uh, Debian-based um, um, version of Linux. Um, if you are in something like the aerospace or something, it may be Arch Linux or Scientific Linux, depending on what you're doing. Uh, but really, uh, go-to standard um, government-wise is Red Hat. Uh, go-to standard uh, industry-wise, something like a, a Google or a Facebook. More than likely, be a Debian based.
0: Now I know we've seen a huge amount of growth in Linux based servers, especially with the cloud. Linux is well over fifty percent of the deployed operating systems that are out there for, for servers. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you how do you view the state of Linux on the desktop? Are you seeing organizations using that more or no real growth? What what's your opinion there?
2: Uh, so, what I've seen on a desktop is actually being agnostic on desktops. So, as we continue to grow, you would now have the option to have Linux or Windows on a desktop because now everything is moving into an app type of space. So, you could be in a a Linux environment and still have Office 365. You could be in a Windows environment and still get a Linux desktop depending on who's doing the deployment right so i think the idea of a the the idea of having a desktop personalized goes away i honestly think i think the the having the desktop being a, being agnostic as possible being treated like cattle is what you're going to see more of um and and even what i mean you, and you can look at it and think about it windows now has linux you can run linux inside so the the need to have these little specialty things and one-offs are, are are it's a slow process but it's coming to the point where their desktop it doesn't matter like can I pull it from my app and can I use it okay cool
0: you know it's funny if you look back historically the the CEO of Sun Microsystems forever ago he said Mm -hmm. that uh he wanted to see the day when computers became like a telephone where you just plugged into the wall and that was it you didn't care what operating system was on there Mm -hmm. um sun got eaten by oracle so they're kind of gone but what he predicted is basically coming about now
2: right we're becoming agnostic on the desktop i i i think i think the app's Now, I think that's when you get into the flavor of like, hey, I have an iPad or, hey, I have a Pixel. Did you make an app for X, Y, and Z? You know, and that that goes back to the consumer, right? The consumer drives the demand,
0: You know, uh, speaking of demand, we are starting to see a lot of careers pop up that are not tied to being a developer or not tied to being a sysadmin, but being a Mm -hmm. DevOps person, right? Where they get blurred Mm -hmm. together. With web applications, a lot of that's required that if I'm deploying in Azure or deploying in AWS, I have to know how to be able to support the operating system as well as the applications that are going in it. Mm -hmm. So when you recommend training to people or you work with community colleges and, and technical schools... Are they kind of working both sides there to train people not just with administration but development also, or or are they specializing?
2: Mostly, it's just data and web apps. It's very hard to find someone that understands like this is a server. We're gonna rack and stack this. Uh, this is how you create a RAID one zero or six zero. Here's a sand. Here's an ice guzzy. Yeah, you don't you don't find that. Um, most, more, more, most of the time, um, what I do try to do is let people know that, that it exists and depending on what size of the company that you're going into, you will probably do something of that nature. If you're in a 20 person company, you're the admin that knows cloud data, big data security. You're the admin that knows everything. If you're in a, in a, in a system, there's 10,000 people, you only got one job. <laughs> so you don't get, you know what I'm saying? You don't get right. that that whole big scheme of of, of of skills. So you have to pick and choose who who do you want to work for. What? How do you want to homegrown your skill sets? I tell everyone starting out who's in tech, don't go for the big companies. Go for the small company because that's what that's how you grow. That's how you grow your skills.
0: I think that's a great point. And and when you look at a lot of people that are successful in the field, they do, they have that history of of moving from smaller companies to larger ones. It's Mm -hmm. a a great way to learn out there in the field.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Tamika, I really appreciate you spending time with us. Are are there any other topics that you want to hit on before we wrap up our interview?
2: Um, Other than um, make sure that a a lot of times, a lot of people get caught up in in tech um, with, Hey, how do I maneuver? Uh, My best advice to everyone is um, stay skilled up. Don't walk into tech with the same skills you had on day one and day 30, you still have the same skills. Always move forward in your skill sets and keep a daily journal of what you worked on And then at the end of that daily journal, at the end of the 30 days, go back and do a reflection on that. And that's how you know if you're moving forward or, you know, if you became stagnant.
0: You know, we have a saying here at the office, which is a good IT pro is always learning. And that's... uh... Basically the same thing you're saying. So we're we're all, all right. in line on our vision, which is great.
2: Right. <laughs> all, all right. All right.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, that has been uh, Ms. Tamika Reed with Women in Linux. If you want to learn more, please visit her website, womeninlinux.com. And, uh, and Tamika, you guys have a pretty big social media presence, right?
2: Right. Yeah, we're on uh, Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, we have our website. We're on YouTube. I've spoken at a couple of conferences, from Lisa to Siegel, uh, Ozcon uh we're we're everywhere so if you want if you want us we're on on women in linux everything
0: all right so if you want to learn more be sure to visit the website or reach out on social media and remember they do all of their stuff virtually online so you can jump in attend those meetups learn a lot of great information and uh, even if you don't do that just on their website there are a number of videos already posted definitely a great value be sure to check that out Tamika. again thank you for spending time with us really appreciate it and for you out there in tv land Don't go anywhere because we're gonna be right back with more Technado after this.
1: My name is Dana Morrison. I'm the IT director at Grace Christian School in Raleigh, North Carolina. IT directors often hoard so much knowledge that it's hard for their team members to learn. IT Pro TV has given us the ability to level up our technicians. To a point where they can decide this is important for me to learn I would recommend IT Pro TV uh, to any IT team it's just a great tool uh, for any IT
0: professional welcome back ladies and gentlemen that was a great interview with Tamika I really appreciate her taking the time to do that for us and I want to remind you all that the service she provides is is absolutely free so definitely engage with her. If you're not a woman and uh, want to get involved in Linux, you're absolutely welcome to. But if you do know other women that are out there, please share her information with them. Uh, get them over to womeninlinux.com. Definitely check that out. All right. Well, in this episode, we have talked about a lot of really cool stuff. You know, Justin and I started talking about AWS and new announcements that have come out this week. And then Tamika and I were talking about Linux. If you want to learn more about those topics, be sure to check out IT Pro TV. Go to go.itpro.tv/technado. When you go to that site, you will see a link right there where you can sign up for IT Pro TV at a 30% discount. Definitely check that out. You can access our entire courseware library, and it's a great way to learn Linux, AWS, and any number of other technology topics. It's all right there in the library, waiting for you, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Be sure to check it out. Supporting IT Pro TV keeps the TechNado rolling, and that's important because we really enjoy doing this. It's a lot of fun. But as far as this week's concerned, that is a wrap for this episode. Thank you all for watching. Be sure to tune back in next week for more Technado.